Amen. All right, let's go. Genesis chapter 2. Genesis chapter 2. If you have a Bible, uh, grab it real fast. It's okay to run off to your bedroom uh, to go and find it if you need to. Uh, but let's be honest, like a third of y'all are watching this in your bedroom right now. So just like reach over and grab it. Um, another third of you are probably watching it in your living room. And that last third of you, I, I don't really want to know where you're watching it from because I'm just not going to ask. Um, but uh, if you have a Bible, grab it. Uh, turn with me to Genesis chapter 2. If you don't have a Bible, that's okay. Uh, we'll put our text for the morning uh, up on your screen in just a moment. Uh, we, we love God's Word around here. We believe that, it's, uh, that God has given it to us for all kinds of important reasons. But chief among those important reasons is that He uses it to reveal Himself to His people. Like you knowing God is something we are wholeheartedly about here. It's something that, that we desperately want for you. And so we, we make it our aim around here uh, to get people's noses in Bibles as often as we possibly can. Um, we truly believe that God will use it to change you forever. Um, and so if you have a Bible, grab it. If you don't, that's okay. Uh, but give me a call sometime this week. Maybe we can do something about that. I'd love to mail you a Bible. Genesis chapter 2. So uh, we have been working on a series since the week before Easter now, our spring sermon series, uh, that we've been calling The Gospel is a Blank. And the idea is that we've filled in that blank with a different word or phrase each and every week. The gospel is a this. The gospel is a that. And so uh, the premise that drives this whole thing is that, well, I happen to think that one of the best ways to articulate or, or give illustration to the gospel, or we could say it this way, uh, one of the best ways to give picture to what it is God has done and is doing through the death and resurrection of Jesus. Right? So one of the best ways to illustrate the gospel is to talk about it like it's a diamond. And we've all seen a diamond before. Maybe you've got one on your finger right now. Maybe you've only ever seen one on TV. Either way, it's okay. For me, honestly, when I think of a diamond, I think a cartoon. Right? I literally think something like this. Right? And so in my head, this is what I picture. Talk about sparkle, man. I mean, doesn't that thing look pretty? Talk about a rock. Right? And so diamonds can be this real thing to you, or they could just be this cartoonish thing that you don't really have any connection to. But even if, no matter where you are in between, a diamond, we all kind of get what a diamond is for. It's meant to be beheld. It's meant to be enjoyed. Whether rich or poor, whether you're into jewelry or not, we, we know what a diamond is. A diamond, man, it, the correct way to look at a diamond is to hold it up and spin it around and enjoy it from all the possible angles. All the possible facets, we could say. A diamond is meant to be beheld. It's meant to be marveled at. To take it in from every possible location. The facets of a diamond, they're not in competition with each other. We're not choosing facet A over facet B. Oh, I really like the sparkle of facet C, so I'm just going to look at it from this one angle. Now you got to spin that sucker around. They're not in competition with each other. Each of the facets serve to elevate and magnify each other. They, ele uh, they elevate each other. And so God has given us, I think, the gospel in the same way. Multiple facets, multiple angles that we can spin this thing around, hold it up, celebrate it, and enjoy it, all right? celebrate it from, but these facets are not in competition with each other. They serve and elevate or magnify each other. The gospel is this one spectacular jewel that's meant to be celebrated and then looked past even to celebrate the giver of such a gift. God is the one who deserves glory for this gospel diamond. So over the course of this series, we've, we've spun this diamond around and we've, 
We've enjoyed it from several different angles. We called ourselves to pay closer attention to and to celebrate some facets that, honestly, we, we might not have previously considered and, and enjoyed all that much. The reality is that, that in the life of the church, there are some angles that we tend to talk about a lot in here, and for good reason, for good reason. But there are, some, there are also some other angles, other facets that we don't tend to bring up as often, don't tend to celebrate so highly. And so over the course of this series, we talked about how the gospel is not only a promised reality, something God planned from before the foundation of the world, to use Ephesians 1 language, right? uh, but we also talked about how the gospel is a narrative, a real story involving real people in a real place at a real moment in history. After that, we talked about how the gospel is, is a transaction. A cosmic trade was made on your behalf. Our, our sin and the penalty for that sin was taken from us. And in return, we are given Jesus' perfect righteousness. A cosmic trade has taken place. We are declared righteous because of our new position in Christ. We also talked about how the gospel is both a mission that we are sent out on, sent out to accomplish, and at the very same time, we talked about how the gospel is a family identity that we're meant to find our rest in, to settle in as home. We talked about how the gospel is a present reality, that God is still, at this very moment, doing a work in you to root out your indwelling sin and put it to death, to, to draw you into a personal righteousness to go along with that already declared righteousness he's given you. And in the last couple of weeks, we talked about how the gospel is both at the very same time a call to suffer and a fountain for joy. That following Jesus in this world it's going to cause you to stand out from the rest of this world, just, just a little bit. It's going to cause you to, to stand out from the rest of this world. And, and his people ought to expect, God's people ought to expect both suffering and joy. Deep suffering and unfathomable, unfathomable intense, otherworldly joy this side of heaven. His people ought to expect both of those things in this life. We walk through both of these realities until the day that Jesus changes the game. But this side of heaven, it's, it's nowhere near all he's promised to us. See, our God is eternal. And he is making eternity-sized promises to his people. Eternity-sized plans for you. He is working all things to a singular end. And so we get to spin the gospel diamond one last time this morning. So we've got one more facet that we can kind of hold up and celebrate this morning. So what is that facet? What is the angle that we get to marvel at God's gospel jewel today? The gospel is a future reality. A future reality. Now, when you think of the future, what do you, what do you normally think of, right? For some, it's the Jetsons, or something in that vein at least. Right, you think of new technology, flying cars, and robot butlers, man. Right? All right, so make sure you ask Alexa to turn me up while we're talking. Right? All right, so now, now you think of a hopeful, and yeah, maybe even a little cartoonish, but hopeful future. You think of a place and a time where cultural and technological advancements secure a standard of living for you that makes 21st century or early 21st century look backwoods and podunt. 
All right? That's what you think of when you think of the future. I mean, can you believe that we used to have to drive across town in cars? It would take us minutes. We, we, now we get to be beamed places, right? It, it's that kind of logic in your head, that kind of thing that's playing out in your imagination. For some of you, the future is all about having dominion over the world around you through the tools of a more modern age. That's the future when you picture it in your head. You're in control and things finally work exactly like they should because you're the boss and you get to say what happens, right? That's the future for you. Pull out all the stops, put your foot on the gas, let's go. Let's hurry up and get there as fast as we can. For others, for others, when you think of the future, you don't think Jetsons, you think of things that are more closer to your reality. You think of big plans that, that you're currently working towards and aiming at. Think about paying off that house, right? Think about graduating college. Maybe finally getting that promotion you've been aiming at and maneuvering for for so long. Chasing after for years. And when you think of those things, you, I'm willing to bet that you likely also think of the recognition and the rest that comes when you finally get those things. It's supposed to come when those things finally arrive. Sometimes both. You made it. Congratulations, man. Time to sit down and take a load off. You have made it there. Sit down for a while. You get excited about the future because for you, the future is where things will finally click into place. You'll find that rhythm that you think that, that you were created for. You'll finally be and finally get to do what you've always dreamed of. Finally begin to play out like you've been maneuvering and chasing after for however long. There are others, though. There are others, though, that when you think of the future, it's not the fulfillment of plans that you think about. It's more of a worry, Right? The future is not something to look forward to. It, it, it might even be something that absolutely terrifies you. The future is something that you want to avoid, not, sometimes because it's unknown and, and sadly sometimes because it's entirely known. The future is for you is it's about that thing that's out there that you want to put off for as long as you possibly can avoid it. And you long for a happily ever after. You long for an escape, but there's nothing within your power to bring that about. And so you're just waiting for the shoe to finally drop. For some of you, the future is not a happy place at all. It's something to be avoided if possible. See, the future can mean a lot of different things for a lot of different people. And if we were to go out and take a survey and anywhere we could find a group of six foot apart people and ask them what, what do you what what do you think of when you think future we get a thousand different answers guys which is interesting to me because I think very few of them would look the same as what the Bible talks about when it talks about the future it doesn't matter how many people we poll I, I think what will come out of their mouth when we say what is the future will actually be the exact opposite of what the Bible frames the future as. Well, sort of. Let, let me explain. See, when the Bible talks about the future, it talks, it's, it's an interesting shape because it seems to talk about a return to the past. 
the fulfillment of an ancient reality. Let me show you what I mean. Genesis chapter 2. Hang on for the ride because we're going to read the whole chapter here. Moses, the writer of Genesis 2, says this, Thus the heavens and the earth were finished, and all the hosts of them. And on the seventh day, God finished his work that he had done, and he rested on the seventh day from all his work that he had done. So God blessed the seventh day and made it holy, because on it, God rested from all his work that he had done in creation. Verse 4, these are the generations of the heavens of the earth when they were created. In the day that the Lord God made the earth and the heavens, when no bush of the field was yet in in the land and no small plant of the field had yet sprung up, for the Lord God had not caused it to rain on the land, and there was no man to work the ground, and a mist was going up from the land and was watering the whole face of the ground. Then the Lord God formed the man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living creature. And the Lord God planted a garden in Eden in the east where the, and where he put the man whom he had formed. And out of the ground the Lord God had made to spring up every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. The tree of life was in the midst of the garden and the tree of knowledge of good and evil. Verse 10. A river flowed out of Eden to water the garden, and there it divided and became four rivers. The name of the first was the Pishon, uh, and it is the one that flowed around the whole land of Hivala, uh, where there is gold. And the gold of that land is good. Delium and onyx stone are there. The name of the second river is the Gihon. It is the one that flowed around the whole land of Cush. And the name of the third river is the Tigris, which flows east of Assyria. And the fourth river is the Euphrates. And the Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work it and keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat, you shall surely die. Verse 18, And the Lord God said, It is not good that a man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. Now out of the ground the Lord God had formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens brought to them and brought them to the man, excuse me, and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called the living creatures, that was its name. Verse 20, And the man gave names to all livestock and the birds of the heavens and every beast of the field. But for Adam, there was not found a helper fit for him. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man. And while he slept, took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had, made, had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. And then the man said, This at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Verse 24, Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. So man is created. He's placed in the garden. He is endowed with an authority and a responsibility from his creator to have dominion and to shepherd over the rest of creation. That's Adam's responsibility. And so he has a helper made specifically for him, or we could even say out from him. And the boy is, in, <laughs> the boy is impressed. All right? He's so impressed, in fact, that he takes one look at her and he starts singing a song. It's like a Broadway show. Maria, I just met a girl named Maria. Adam immediately finds himself in the deep end here. He is head over heels, and that's okay. In fact, I think that's God-given. I think that's God's design in this moment. I think that's exactly what God intended for him to do. I think that's exactly how God wanted and expected Adam to react in this moment. But it also gets way better. Because we're also told that that they're running around naked and unashamed. And while COVID has definitely 
force a lot of everyone into the privacy of their homes a lot more. I'm just going to guess that's not how your yesterday went. Adam and Eve, they're walking in a creation and in a relationship with their creator and a relationship with each other that is flawless. Full stop. Flawless. There is no shame between them because nothing exists in all of creation to be shameful of. Everything, literally everything, works exactly like it was created to work. Everything. And so man and woman who walk in perfect relationship with their God, in perfect relationship with each other, in perfect relationship with the rest of creation, they are placed in a garden and they are tasked with cultivating it. And the Bible leads us to believe that everything they touch, it turned to gold, man. Everything. Things grew, things matured, it just worked. Like Apple a decade ago. And again, I, I'm willing to believe that that's not what's happening in your house right now. I mean, how many of you struggled to, to make it to the couch this morning to watch a live stream? That's not what's going on in your house. That's not what's going on in my house. I don't know about you, but it, it seems like I always have an idea of how things ought to go, and then, well, life just kind of kicks that idea in the face. Right? Or am I alone in that? I run out of time. Other projects vie for my attention. Maybe someone even stands in the way of that project. And that's just the inanimate stuff. When we're talking about relationships and the need to cultivate those, I'm going to just shock you here. There are some times that the person that I'm pursuing doesn't want to be pursued. There are times when they don't care. They ain't having it. Listen, if your eyes are open at all, and I mean at all, it is not hard to see that we do not live anymore in a Genesis 2 world. So what happened? Well, Genesis 3 happened. It all falls apart. The Bible teaches that sin entered into the world through our rebellion against God. We rejected his rule, we rejected his authority, we rejected his definition of good and evil, and we placed ourselves on the throne. God doesn't want what's best for me, I want what's best for me, and so I'm going to go get it myself, forget him. I've got this, I don't need that guy. You think he can lord over me? No, 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 I'm king of my castle. And the Bible teaches, the Bible teaches that not only does our sin fracture our relationship with God, but it also jacks up all the other relationships too with each other and with the rest of creation. And those of you who know your Bible well, Genesis 3.18, <laughs> thorns and thistles it produces for us. Thorns and thistles. I, I think any kind of honest look at the brokenness that surrounds us in this world, guys, it ought to leave you frustrated. It really ought to. Whether we're talking global level catastrophes or we're just talking about the dumb stuff that messes up your day, frustration is a natural result of watching your best laid plans produce thorns and thistles. It's coming. And I know people have all kinds of temperaments in this world. I get that, but I'll be honest. I, I, I find it really hard to trust anyone who's never angry about stuff. Like ever. 
They're either not paying attention to the brokenness around them or they're bottling it up and are about to explode. A deep frustration is a natural result, a natural thing produced by the sin-broken world that we all find ourselves living in. It really is. And the Bible's first answer as to why we finally get to that point of why that frustration exists, the Bible's first answer for all of this mess is to point to how we got here. This place is broken. And we broke it. That's the Bible's answer. Our sin, my sin, jacked this place up, man. We broke it. We rejected and we continue to reject God's reign over us and we place ourselves on the throne. But listen, buried inside of that frustration is also a massive assumption. An assumption that we've been created for more than this. See, the reason why that frustration exists is because we, we have a, a little kernel in our heart that tells us it used to not always be this way. We've been designed for something better. And it just so happens that the Bible's second answer for why we all experience this frustration is to remind us that it will not remain this way forever. It did not start this way, and it will not end this way. See, every great story has some key characteristics. It doesn't matter what era of literature we're talking about. They're, and they're all really chasing after the happily ever after. They really are. Um, we want the good guys to win. We want the bad guys to lose. We want the hero to ride off with the girl. All right? that's, that's, that's every story that we've ever come across. That's what we long for deep inside. And, and yeah, there are some stories, even good stories, that don't play out with that trajectory. They may play out with the opposite trajectory, but they get there by making you want the happily ever after and then holding that back from you. They, they hang it out like a carrot and say, no, nope, you can't have it. We all long for the happily ever after. It is hardwired into us. All right? So Katie and I rewatched a movie called August Rush a few nights ago. It's a story about a, a kid growing up in foster care, and he's a musical prodigy, and he wants to find his parents uh, who don't even know that he's alive right now. Right? And so uh, the movie is full of all kinds of stuff that are just gigantic problems for movies. Uh, for, for instance, in, in some cases, the movie doesn't just make sense at all. all right? um, there, uh, there are major plot holes, um, and the people who wrote the movie, they don't seem to actually understand music or how music works, which is a problem when your main character is a musical prodigy. All right? uh, and so to, like, to watch this movie and, and understand how music works, you go, that's not how that does that. That's not how a guitar works. No, that, it, it cannot physically accomplish this thing that he's doing right now. And so there are major holes in this movie. But i got to be real honest with you. I absolutely adore this movie. I, I really do love it. And it's because all three of their stories, mom, dad, who aren't together but come together at the end of the movie, mom, dad, kid, they, all three of these stories kind of converge in the grand sweeping moment at the end of the movie and the kid is forever reunited with his family. Everything is fixed. And I love the movie because of that moment. Relationships are repaired. Dreams are realized. The bad guy is left cold and alone. Right? Everything is now right with the world. 
Happily ever after is hardwired into us. We all want and ultimately find our rest in stories where things are forever made right. We yearn for it. We long for stories where justice is served with celebration and shouts for joy. We want as many of those moments as possible. We all desperately love the story where the winners get to party at the end. Don't we? And it just so happens that the greatest story ever ends with an eternal party. An eternal celebration. See, I think the reason why we're all so drawn to the happily ever after is because we actually find ourselves in the middle of the biggest story ever. And the writer of this story has promised exactly that. Exactly that. So turn with me to Revelation chapter 21. Revelation 21. So uh, we started in the beginning of the Bible, the beginning of this grand story, but now let's turn to the final scene, all right? And so we started with the beginning, now let's turn to the final scene. Revelation is a vision that Jesus gives to the apostle John. It's a vision uh, that, that of a future reality that hasn't played out yet and hasn't even played out yet for us. Over 2,000 years removed from this moment for John, but even still, this stuff has not played out yet today. Uh, and, and if you don't have a lot of experience with the book of Revelation, that's okay. All right? uh, there's a lot of weird imagery. It's an apocalyptic letter, right? so there's a lot of weird imagery and poetic language, and there's even some stuff that we're not really 100% sure what that means. Like, we can guess at some stuff. We can uh, try to, to, to drill down and figure some of those things out, but there's just a lot of this stuff that leaves us scratching our head, and we trust that God will answer one of these days, right? Um, but no matter what, what's going on with all the stuff we don't understand, the, the purpose of Revelation is crystal clear. The overarching purpose of Revelation is to encourage God's people in the middle of terrible circumstances. Terrible circumstances. When it looks like everything has fallen apart, when it looks like all of the circumstances around us tell us that we ought to be fearful, that we ought to be overwhelmed, that we ought to be scared out of our wits, we can trust in that moment that God is in control, that God is still in charge of all of history, that the good, the bad, and that everything in between, all of history is moving towards his desired end. There's no variable outside of its control. Call it what you want. Political powers, spiritual powers, doesn't matter. He is the king seated upon the throne. That's the, the purpose of the book of Revelation. And so in Revelation 21, start looking at, uh, with me at verse 1 here. John says this, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. Verse 4, He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things had passed away." And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. Okay, let's call a time out there. Okay, so John has a vision. And like I said, there's some weird stuff going on. All right? A city comes floating down out of the sky. 
All right, that's, that's a sight to behold. I get that. I'm not sure exactly what that literally means, but maybe it means literally comes floating down the sky. We don't know. All right, but it's a weird picture nonetheless. And they're told that this city is magnificent. We're told that it's supposed to represent God's people, the church, and they're, they're coming down adorned like a bride for her husband, decorated like a bride for her husband. I mean, think back to the last wedding you went to. I mean, I know we're in the middle of, you know, having wedding season for this year just get canceled right out from under us, but it probably hasn't been that long ago, all right? Think back to the last wedding you went to, all right? Uh, there's, it doesn't matter what all the extra stuff is going on. There's the, everybody's kind of dressed to the nines. There's all this celebration. They're doing this, they're doing that. But then there comes this moment where everything comes to a standstill, all right? No matter what proceedings happen before this moment, doesn't matter. There comes a moment when the doors flow, fly open at the back and the bridal march starts, right? And in that moment, what happens? Everybody stops what they're doing. They stand up, they turn around, and they put their direct attention on the bride. Everybody starts ooing and eyeing. Oh, isn't she pretty? I think I'm going to cry. You've been in that moment a beautiful moment. It's the moment I experienced when I got married. But as a pastor who does weddings now, <laughs> I've learned in that moment not to look at the bride. While everybody is rightly ooing and aahing at her, I choose to stare at the groom. Because while everybody else is impressed, his reaction is better better. In that moment, the groom is undone. They smile. Most of them cry a little bit. The groom's in a good place. A good place. So when I, I get to stand in the front of a church and I got the groom sitting right there beside me, everybody's turned around with their backs to the groom, I'm watching that guy because he is having a moment. And so John, he describes God's people as the bride. Who's the groom? Jesus. See, it turns out that the greatest story ever ends with a wedding. The greatest story ever is actually a chick flick. What else do we see in this picture? It's huge. It says, we're told that God will dwell with his people forever. Hey, you know how I can usually tell pretty quick whether or not somebody loves Jesus? I watch their reaction to that moment. I watch their reaction to that news. Dwell with God forever. Do they see that as great news? Do they see that as, as something that they desperately long for? Or are they kind of apathetic to that moment? Maybe even want to avoid that moment. He will dwell with them and they will be his people and God himself will be with them as their God. Oh, if you love Jesus, that's a day you look forward to. That's a day that you want to get here as soon as possible. It doesn't mean that there aren't great things that you look forward to between now and then. But to echo John himself at the end of this letter, come quickly, Lord Jesus. Come quickly. 
We will dwell with him forever. What a glorious way to spend an eternity. But that's not all that's going on in John's vision either. Look what comes after that in verse 4. Read it again. Verse 4. He, God, will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. So it's one thing, a really good thing. It's one thing to say that bad things will be forever done away with. Bad things will forever stop happening one day. That's really great news. That's undeniably great news. That's, that's news worthy of celebration, but it's a far bigger reality to say that God himself will be the one to wipe away all the tears that those things caused. It's a much bigger reality still. There is a tenderness here that goes beyond, far beyond merely removing pain. He is near to his people. He will wipe those tears away and they will never, and I mean ever again, be a need to repeat that action because from that point forward, there will never, and I mean ever again, be any mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore. They have passed away. We're told that death itself will be forever done away with. Forever. Those things will be old realities that pass away and never return. And how could they in his presence? <laughs> who, who could ever undo what our God has done? Like seriously? Who could ever outsmart his plan, outmaneuver him, be stronger than him? Who could undo his work? Ah, oh, but Stephen... You said that the world was broken by sin. We spent all that time all ago talking about how everything in this world is, is marked with, laced with frustration because of its broken reality. Yeah, yeah, I did say that. But then in Revelation 21.5, Jesus has the audacity to say, behold, I'm making all things new. What was broken is being forever undone. It is being repaired better even than before it was broken. I'm, I mean, that sounds pretty good, but that's a big promise. I mean, you think Jesus can actually pull that off? Oh, I'm so glad you asked. Look at what Jesus says next in verse 5. And he who is seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. Also, he said, write this down. For these words are trustworthy and true. And he said to me, it is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty I will give from the spring of the water of life without payment. To the one who conquers will have this heritage, and I will be his God, and he will be my son. Verse 8, but, for the, uh, but as for the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, as for murderers, the sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars, their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. Skip down to uh, uh, verse 22. It says, and I saw no temple in the city, for its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb. And the city has no need of sun or moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives it light, and its lamp is the Lamb. Uh, by its light will the nations walk, and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it. And its gates will never be shut by day, and there will be no night there, for they will bring into it the glory and the honor of the nations. But nothing unclean will ever enter it, nor anyone who does what is detestable or false, but only those who are written in the Lamb's book of life. 
life. Chapter 22, verse 1. And then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and the Lamb through the middle of the street of the city, also on either side of the river, the tree of life with its 12 kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit each month. The leaves of the trees were for the healing of the nations. No longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and the Lamb will be in it, and his servants will worship him. Verse 4. And they will see his face. They will see his face. And his name will be on their foreheads. And night will be no more. There will be no need of light of lamp or sun. For the Lord God will be their light. And they will reign forever and ever. Jesus says, write this down. Write it down. He's not going to change his mind. He's not going to forget. He's not, he's not going to be overpowered or outsmarted. No, he is Alpha and Omega. Alpha is the first letter in the Greek alphabet. Omega is the last letter in the Greek alphabet. So he's saying, I am everything that matters from A to Z. Literally, the beginning and the end. I was here and ruled over this story when it started, and I am here now ruling over this story as it comes to its conclusion. There is no authority that can challenge him, let alone beat him. He is king. He is the king who judges with perfect righteousness. And he is the king who reigns forever. And he will protect his kingdom forever from all evil. Write it down. It is done. Has it happened yet? No, it hasn't. But it's coming. And he is good. And you can trust him. Write it down. Back on Easter Sunday, we looked at how the gospel is a transaction. We learn that Jesus rescues us from the penalty of our sin. It is paid for, paid for, and there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Then a few weeks ago, we looked at how the gospel is a present reality. We learned that, that Jesus rescues us from the power of our sin. We work out our salvation with fear and trembling. We put it to death and walk in life. Today, guys, today we see that Jesus rescues us from the presence of our sin. Jesus carrying all authority in heaven and on earth. He will forever do away with all sin. All sin. With all sin, with all sinners, and with all the effects that that sin has caused. All the effects that that sin has wrought in this world. Follower of Jesus, you have been saved. You are being saved. But at the very same time, we anxiously await our future salvation. The day when sin will be no more. When all tears will be forever wiped away, and we will see his face. We will see his face. We will dwell forever with our God. Church family, the gospel, the cosmic happily ever after we share with our forever king, the gospel is a future reality. No matter what you think of when you think of the future, whether you long for the day when things work as they should or you long for the day where rest will finally be complete and you long for the day where relationships will be made whole or even if you long for the day when every tear will be wiped away and death itself will be no more. Oh, Christian, your king promises you nothing less than that. Nothing less than that. He promises a day when all of those things and countless others will be forever realities. Write it down. It is done. He promises a day when he will dwell with his people as their God forever. And nothing, literally nothing, will ever come between us again. Ever. Not sin, not pain, no evil shall ever befall you because evil itself has been forever undone. 
Oh, but Steve, that, that sounds like escapism. Haven't you ever heard that you can be so heavenly-minded that you're of no earthly good? We should be worried about what's in front of us right now. It's not escapism. What it is, is the take-it-to-the-bank promise of our promise-keeping God. Our promise-keeping God is the, is the fulfillment of the happily ever after that you were created for. It is a story of cosmic proportions that starts all the way back in the garden and ends with a forever party where the good guy wins, the bad guy loses, and the hero gets the girl. That's the story we live in. It's a story that your creator has hardwired you to long for and then to live out with him forever. And so the question that needs to be answered this morning is clear. What do we do with this news? What do we do with it? What do we do with the eternal realities sitting in front of us this morning? If you're watching this and you're already a follower of Jesus, your response is to long a little more deeply for that happily ever after. That's our response. Spin the gospel diamond this week and marvel at the eternal promises he is making to finite little old you. That's your response. There is coming a day when sin will be no more where tears will be forever wiped away and we will joyfully dwell with our God. And so let us repent of sin today knowing that it has no place in his kingdom to come. Let's put it to death now because it, it won't be there. Let's practice for that day. Let's lean in to, to, to the God who not only gives us himself now, but much more fully on that day to come. It'll be a good day. He'll have a moment. But we don't merely wait for that day. We can begin to reorient ourselves and celebrate even now. I'm going to pray. We're going to sing. That's a moment for you to celebrate. Lean in to who he is and what he gives you. Maybe you need to respond in some other kind of way this morning, whether it's to be obedient in baptism, whether it's to join this church family or or maybe it's to say yes to that call of missions that God is placing in front of you to, so you can play a role in inviting as many people as possible into this coming kingdom. Maybe that's your response this morning. If you're watching this and you're not a follower of Jesus yet, I'm glad you chose to hang out today. I think God's working through that. You can, you can respond to God's word too, and you do that by meeting Jesus. This kingdom to come is indeed glorious. It, it, will not be, it, will, it will not be matched by anything that this world could ever dream of offering. But hear me very clearly. Not everyone is a citizen of this kingdom. And no one is by default. No one is there by birthright. No one is there because they passed some citizenship test. No one, absolutely no one, has ever or will ever be there because they have earned their place there. Jesus' kingdom don't work that way. This kingdom is solely for those who belong to Jesus through his death and resurrection. The Bible teaches that your sin separates you from God. It deserves his wrath. By default, we are all the ones that are cast out from this kingdom, out from the presence, uh, or the, cast out forever from Jesus' sinless kingdom. 
It would be a failure of his duty to remove all sin if he were to let me in based on my own righteousness. But God made a way where there was no way. Jesus put on flesh and dwelt among us. He lived the sinless life that neither you nor I are capable of living. And he died on the cross as a sinless substitute to pay the debt for your sin. And he was raised again from the dead, raised again from the grave as a vindication of his perfect righteousness. And he now calls on you as the conquering king to respond to him in repentance and faith, to turn away from your sin and turn to him as Savior and Lord. And no matter where you are this morning, no matter how you got to this point, you can do that right now. You can respond to the gospel's call and you can respond to Jesus today. You can repent of your sin and you can trust Jesus alone for salvation, a salvation that begins today, a salvation that carries you through tomorrow and a salvation that meets its fullness in a forever kingdom to come. Normally I'd be down front here calling people to come forward. I can't do that today. Separated by however far. But listen, that doesn't mean we can't talk. You don't need me, but I'd love to help you. I'd love to help you walk through what this response of faith looks like. Give me a call after we're done here. Jump in the pastor's Q&A uh, uh, after we're done. I, I can meet you somewhere. I don't care. Let's get creative. You don't need me, but I'd love to help you walk through what this response of faith looks like. So I'm going to pray. We're going to sing. Let's all respond to God's word this morning. Father, you're good to us. Thank you for the scriptures. Thank you for a cosmic and eternal story. A story that begins long before me, but somehow involves me forever. Father, I am small. And I look around me and I see the brokenness of sin in the world. I see the brokenness of sin and the things that I chase after. I see the brokenness of sin in my own heart. And if it is true that you have created us for the happily ever after, drastic things need to change in me. By my own standing, I, I'm, I'm not on the good guy list. But you are good. And you are gracious. And you are mighty to save. So thank you for being a God who makes a way where there was no way. Who loves his enemies in a drastic way. God, for those who, of us who know you, who love you, would you give us a few more glimpses of that kingdom to come? Just to whet our appetite. Would you help us long for that day? Come quickly, Lord Jesus. Would you help us kill off sin? Would you help us 
pursue righteousness so that we fit in a little bit better when we get there. Father, for those who don't know you, would you make yourself known even in this moment? You can do that. You can save people today, even separated through the internet. You're big enough for that. Would you call people to yourself this morning? Draw them into your kingdom. Father, if we as a church can come alongside them, help us do that well. Give people the courage to to take the actions they need in response to you this morning. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.